If you have your Bibles, you can turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 7, a verse probably that you've highlighted and uh, read and referenced many times, but allow me to read two verses. We will pray and we will launch in before you're seated. Verse 13, the Bible says, and God speaking here, if I shut up heaven and there be no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, if my people which are called by my name, shall humble themselves, you might as well read it with me, and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Can we pray together over the word tonight? Lord, we love you. We're thankful for your touch, for your presence. Lead us and guide us in the next few moments. Open our hearts to receive your word. Help us to be challenged and changed and to leave this place on purpose. In Jesus' name we ask. Everybody say amen. Amen. You can be seated tonight. This particular passage of scripture, it takes place when Solomon, King Solomon, has just completed praying the dedication prayer over the temple, the one that he built. And if you study the scripture in the Old Testament, the times of the kings in particular, you will recognize that the time under Solomon's reign was without a doubt the glory days for the nation of Israel. And we could go into all of that and all the details of his time as king, but the crowning jewel of his accomplishments was, without question, the temple that he built. And when it was completed and the work was was over, he prayed a prayer of dedication over that temple. And it was a a beautiful prayer of dedication, but in it, Solomon, he poses all kinds of hypothetical scenarios to God. God, what if this happens? And what if that happens? And you can read about these in 2 Chronicles 6, also 1 Kings chapter 8. But he says, God, if somebody wrongs another person, if Israel is defeated by their enemies, if the skies are shut up and there's a drought, if there is famine in the land, crop diseases, locusts and caterpillars, God, if enemies raid our land, our cities and our towns, or if we sin against you, God, and then he says, and, and nobody hasn't sinned, you know. But if we sin and then you allow us to be carried away captive to a foreign land, God, if any of these things happen, you know, time and time again, Solomon says, God, what if? But along with all the hardships that might come along, Solomon, he was a wise man and he already knew the solution. And if you read through that prayer of dedication, you will recognize that alongside all of these hypothetical hardships that he lists, Solomon also lists and gives another if. And five different times in the prayer, Solomon also said, but God, if we pray, if, if these things happen, God, that's not favorable, but, but if alongside that, if we pray, please hear us from heaven. And so Solomon, he finishes the prayer of dedication. God responds by sending fire from heaven. He consumes the sacrifices offered on the altar. God's glory was so thick in the temple after the prayer that the priests could not stand to minister or perform their duties. The people, they were so awestruck at what was happening, they fell with their faces to the ground and they worshiped the Lord. It was a powerful moment at the dedication of the temple of Solomon. And some days later, God comes to Solomon in response to his dedication, his prayer, and his sacrifices. And this is where our opening passage comes from. 2 Chronicles 7, now verse 12, we'll begin there. The Lord appeared to Solomon by night, and he said unto him, I have heard thy prayer, and I have chosen this place, this temple, to myself for an house of sacrifice. 
And God, it's as if he was saying, Solomon, I've heard your what ifs. I've heard all the hypothetical hardships that you've named. And yes, Solomon, if I shut up heaven that there be no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I in fact send pestilence among my people, I've got another if. And you already know what it is, Solomon, but here it is. Let me spell it out for you. If my people called by my name, if they will humble themselves, pray, seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sins, and heal their land. So God responded to Solomon, if all of that stuff happens, don't lose hope. I have a lifeline for you, Solomon. I have a lifeline for you, people of God. And it is if my people will pray, I will hear, I will forgive, and I will heal. We all have what ifs in our life. Life is full of them. And sometimes our greatest calamities, they can come by our own poor choices. Solomon even named some like that. God, we might sin one day and, and we might find ourselves in a foreign land as a result. But for all of life's ifs, God has an if, and that is prayer. Now, I just want to walk through this passage of Scripture in particular, verse 14, and I really want to treat it as a blueprint for prayer a little bit, if you will. And uh, why don't we go on a journey through one verse of Scripture with several, dare I say, many other accompanying Scriptures. Now, we all understand that the word if is a hinge word. Everyone say if. If my people is how the scripture begins. And if communicates potential for amazing things, but only potential. Nothing more than that. See, on the other side of that if lies a greater future. And on this side, only the thought of what could have been. And we say things like, what if? The word if, it lays the burden of responsibility solely on us to instigate the interaction. Because for every if, there is also an if not. If we do it, this will happen. But if we don't, it won't. Am I being too simplistic here tonight? But if it communicates choice, if gives us the opportunity to determine our own destiny in God, the fact that we don't have to be locked down and bound up in our current circumstances, and our city doesn't have to be laid dormant in all kinds of humanism and secularism. And our families don't need to be deceived and lost by every wind of false doctrine. But we have an opportunity to be a catalyst for change. But it's only an opportunity. If my people. The blunt truth of the matter is this, that we can be a praying people. But we can also not be a praying people. We can spend time with God each and every day, and what a blessed opportunity that is, but we can also choose not to. We can also choose to become preoccupied with the cares of life. Ultimately, it is up to us. If, everyone say if. We can be another average run-of-the-mill religious institution, another church on another street corner, but we don't have to be that. We can skim the surface of spirituality and just kind of flirt with God every once in a while, but we don't have to do that because the power is within each of us to determine the spiritual climate of who we are and more importantly, where we are. Because every time that we lay hold of this opportunity and we become people of prayer and people that seek the face of God, it always and ultimately culminates in God touching the land around us. And so we become a catalyst for change. 
I will say tonight, we can be a people that know how to touch heaven, and that's what I desire to be. We can be a church where God responds to our hunger by sending the fire of his spirit just like he did for Solomon, and I want to be that. We can be believers endued with power from on high, with boldness from the Almighty, where miracles happen when we lift our voices to pray, and I desire that with every fiber of my being. The power and the potential is within us to change the spiritual atmosphere within us and around us. We can change us through the power of prayer. And if through the help of God we will change us, we will change the world around us. Jesus said that when you pray, you enter into a secret place. You enter into your prayer closet. You shut the door and you pray to your Father which sees in secret. But if you pray in secret, the Father that sees in secret, what will he do? He will reward you openly. And so we have private places of prayer that lead to public revelation and, and, and public demonstration of God rewarding the prayers of our lives. It lets me know that the blessings that come from my private prayer closet will not only be experienced in private, but the reward will be obvious not only to me, but everybody around me. I believe that. The world takes notice of a man or a woman of God that goes before his throne and finds that private place of prayer. The truth is this. A praying people always change the atmosphere around them. When God responds to the prayers of his people, again, I say it always culminates in him healing our land. That is where the verse ends that we read tonight. And that is what we all want. It's what we all desire without doubt. We, we all desire for our world to be turned upside down with the gospel. And we want spiritual awakening to spread throughout not just a congregation, but an entire city. Can I get a witness? We all want the name of Jesus to be exalted in a nation like Canada that, that certainly has has never seemed to see a day such as this, so secular, so humanistic, so far from God, but we desire it to be in our nation. But that's where the verse ends. God healing our land. It doesn't begin there, does it? It ends with him healing our land, but in order to get there, we must go to the beginning and we must follow the pattern and the protocol because it always begins with, if my people the opportunity laid before us by God himself. And uh, as I prayed about tonight in this time of Bible study, I, my mind just was drawn to this lesson. And uh, we've been in a time of focused prayer. We've been in a season of sacrifice last week. But uh, I would just say to us tonight, and what the Lord has been stirring me personally and what he has stirred me for this Bible study, is that it must be more than a week-long emphasis and, and God would call us to not make temporary what he desires for us to do indefinitely and permanently. And, and I'm all for uh, called fast and times of focus and where we all gather together. That's all wonderful. I'm not diminishing that. We needed that. And it was such a breath of fresh air. And, and it, it changed the trajectory of what this year is going to be. But God would call us individually to a personal prayer revival and to not just lay it back on the shelf, but keep hold of it and, and keep going before God. So allow us to walk through this verse a little bit, go statement by statement. And again, view it as a blueprint, a progressive revelation, one statement leading to the next. I don't believe that anything is in Scripture haphazardly or by accident. And, 
And I, I'm persuaded that the order of this verse is significant. So let's go on a journey from if my people to God healing our land. Now, first of all, you would uh, notice that this is obviously an if-then statement. If this happens, then it will cause this. Cause and effect, we would say. One action triggering a reaction that leads to a hopefully desired outcome. And you can't reach the outcome unless you first implement the cause. Now, I, I bring this up. I've kind of already hit on this, but the truth of the matter is that a conditional God makes some people uncomfortable because we have come to think of God as so unconditional in many ways. And I do believe that God's love toward us, I mean, if he would go to a cross while we were yet sinners, I do believe that his love that he shows toward us is unconditional. That doesn't mean that he approves of everything we do all the time, but he loves us unconditionally. But there are certainly aspects of God's favor and his blessing and his abundance that are conditional. The Bible is full of these sorts of conditional verses. Matthew 17 and 20, Jesus said, the reason you couldn't cast out the evil spirit is because of your unbelief. Verily I say unto you, if you had faith as a grain of mustard seed, and I will add the word then, ye shall say unto this mountain, remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. But there's an if-then statement in that verse, isn't there? Paul said in Romans 8, if, for if ye live after the flesh, then ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, then ye shall live. Two for the price of one in Romans 8.13. If-then statements. Sometimes the if-then statement is reversed and the Scripture will give the outcome before the cause. Like John 15.14. Ye are my friends, Jesus said, if ye do whatever I command you. Which tells me it is possible to not be God's BFF. Sometimes it's conditional, isn't it? Now, I won't take the time to read all of them, but in 1 John, it is filled with if-then statements, 20 from my count, and I will not take the time to read them. But for example, if we confess our sins, 1 John 1 and 9, if, then he is faithful and he is just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so, yes, our walk with God at times is conditional. Can I get an amen? If we will do what we can do, then God will step in and do what only God can do. And so if you view the verse in kind of these two segments, the if segment and the then segment, if you view it like an equation of sorts, on our side of the equation we have some, some things to do. If we will humble ourselves, pray, seek his face, and turn from wickedness, then God will do what he, only he can do, hear, forgive, and heal. Let's move further in the verse. The opening statement beyond the word if, here is where God is identifying his audience and he said, if my people which are called by my name. Somebody say, my people which are called by my name. Now I would go on record tonight in saying that the apostolic church and this local assembly is very happy and very quick to declare that we are people of the name. We believe in the power of the name of Jesus. It's in that name that we were buried in the waters of baptism. We took on his name in baptism. And so we are unashamedly, unabashedly people of the name of Jesus. Whatsoever you do in word or in deed, Paul said, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. So we are people that believe in the power and the authority of his name. 
when Jesus sent out the, the 70 disciples in Luke chapter 10, he, he sent them to heal the sick and to declare the kingdom of God has come near. And they went and they did it and they went house to house and they did, and they did all of that. But when they returned to Jesus, it was with joy saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us. And it wasn't any power that was within themselves. They weren't spirit-filled at this point. They walked with Jesus. They knew of Jesus. But, but the power and the authority that, that coupled with their prayers and their declaration, it was through his name. It was only by the name of Jesus when they spoke it, things began to happen and demons were subject unto them. And we're cut from the same cloth. We also pray in his name and believe that things happen when we do. Again, we're baptized in his name. We live, we move, we have our being in Jesus' name. We are persuaded and we understand that God has highly exalted Jesus and given him a name which is above every other name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And Jesus declared in John 14, whatsoever ye shall ask in my name. It's not just that we ask, but when we ask him in his name, when we pray and we invoke the powerful name of Jesus, he said, I will do it. So we are people of the name, absolutely. We don't think twice about that fact. We proudly stand and say it, even when it brings scorn, opposition, and mockery. Jesus said this in Matthew 12, 10, 22, and ye shall be hated of all men. He didn't say because of your stance on outward apparel, not because of your stance for morality. You will be hated of all men for my name's sake. You can't, you can't mock, you can't scorn hardly any other world religion or any of their deities or any of their prophets. You, you do that and you're going to get canceled. But, but the name of Jesus and the Christians, they are open season. It's a curse word to some. And he said, you'll be hated for my name. But he that endureth to the end shall be saved. And it's not just scorn from the world. It's even sometimes people in the broader world of Christendom that, that look at the apostolics and they would say, you're Jesus only, or, or they would mock us for our stance on invoking Jesus' name at baptism and so on. But as proud and as thankful as I am to be an apostolic, Jesus' name Christian, I, I want to take it a little bit further than that. And I want to make sure that I don't get apathetic about my relationship with God because the truth is it is possible to have right theology and, and sound doctrine on important matters such as the new birth and the nature of God, the mighty God in Christ, but then not have a relationship with this God that I know so much about. It is possible to be sound on the letter of everything, but miss the man behind the message. And miss the person, yes, the person of Jesus Christ. He, he is personal to us. He, he desires relationship with us. So being called by his name is necessary and wonderful, but it is only the first step in our walk with the Lord and also in this verse. And it brings to mind Matthew chapter 7 when Jesus said, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. For many, verse 22, will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, we, didn't we prophesy in thy name? And in thy name cast out devils, and in thy name do many wonderful works. But Jesus will profess to them, I never knew you. I never had relationship with you. And so 
Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. You used my name even to do wonderful things, but we never had communion. So again, let me just say it. We have revelation of the new birth. We shouldn't be ashamed of that. We have revelation and understanding of the oneness of God, the name of Jesus, and all of that, and, and it's wonderful. We have the truth. We have the truth absolutely 100%, but it does not guarantee that we will have relationship. We must go beyond beyond that, that doctrinal position, if you will. Take it with us, but walk on into relationship. My people call by my name, if I could say it this way. These are people who have, in the New Testament era of time, obeyed Acts 2.38, taken on his name in baptism. These are the people that are called by the name of Jesus. But the scripture goes on, and let me continue to apply this Old Testament verse to our experience with God today. He said, if they will humble themselves and pray. Humble themselves and pray. Prayer is the bridge that we build that brings us into that relationship with God. Prayer is the avenue to communion with our Creator. What a thought that is. That the God that formed man of the dust of the earth desires to commune with us. Let it not be lost on us, the significance of that idea and that thought. And prayer affords us the access. Prayer lets us know his heart. Prayer gives us daily direction and marching orders to do his will. Prayer brings peace that passes understanding. Prayer brings strength for our days. That is prayer. That is the action that we are called to engage in in order to find that place of relationship with the Lord. But he didn't just say pray. He said you got to humble yourself and pray. And I would say it this way. Humility is the posture of prayer. The word, it means what you think it means. To bend the knee, to humiliate, to bring low, to bring into subjection. That's, that's what humility or to humble yourself means. And, and I think it's very appropriate that these two things are, are coupled together. They're back to back in the scripture. And I will couple them together for our purposes tonight. Because the truth is you really can't have one without the other, can you? You can't really have sincere prayer without humility before God. They are connected. I would say that the very act of prayer itself, in some ways, in and of itself, when done with the right spirit, is you humbling yourself before God. Because when you pray, you are automatically acknowledging the fact that you need God's help. When I pray, I'm saying, God, please come down and be with me and, and work on my behalf and touch my family and my city and my church. By virtue of you praying, you are declaring that you are not self-sufficient. God, without you, I can do nothing. I need you, God. You are my source. That's what prayer communicates inherently. It is an act of humility in many ways. And the opposite is also true. By not praying, we are telling God that Number one, prayer is not important. That time of connection is not as important as other things. And by saying it's not important to us, we tell God indirectly that we think that we can manage this life all on our own. Isn't that really what it means when we, when we don't live our days and pause to invite God into the midst? Doesn't that tell him, God, I've got today, you know. I don't need you today, God, I'm good. I've got things all planned out. Take a day off. Really, prayerlessness, if prayerfulness is a sign of humility, then, then prayerlessness is a sign of pride. 
And we all know that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. So, so prayer and humility certainly go together. Amen? Genuine prayer in and of itself is that humbling of oneself. When you adjust your personal schedule, when, when we lay aside other activities to make room for prayer, that is an act of humility. What I have going, God, is not near as important as you today. You are prominent, preeminent. I must decrease that you can increase. That's humility. That is prayer. It is telling God that your time with him is, is more important than any other priority or activity of the day. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, the apostle said, Be clothed with humility. Everyone say humility. For God resisteth the proud. He's quoting Proverbs here. He resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Verse 6, humble yourselves therefore under the, the mighty hand of God that, we may, that he may exalt you in due time. So humble yourself, child of God. And I find it very fascinating and interesting that the very next verse, it, it relates to prayer. He says, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. When you humble yourself before God, it opens the opportunity for you to cast your care on him in prayer. Humility is the posture of the act of prayer. Luke 18, Jesus spoke a parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and, and these people despised others. And he tells this parable, it begins in verse 10, two men went into a temple to pray. You're familiar perhaps with it. One was a Pharisee, the other was a publican. One was this religious guy, seemed to have all his ducks in a row, if you will. The other was a sinner and he just was an abject failure in many ways. And the Pharisee, he stood and he prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee. You know, I'm adding a little bit of inflection here for emphasis. God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are. I can only imagine this is how he's praying. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, and, or even as that publican over there, God. I fast twice in the week. I hope you enjoyed your reward there. I give tithes of all that I possess. And that was the Pharisee's prayer. But the publican, standing afar off, off in a corner somewhere, he would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but he smote his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me. I am a sinner. And I tell you, Jesus said that this man, the, the publican, the one that, that ex expressed humility before God, he went down to his house justified rather than the Pharisee. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. So humility is the posture of prayer. And just briefly, it brings to mind Jesus being crucified, and he is flanked on either side by two criminals on, on two respective crosses. And one arrogantly mocked Jesus while they are all hanging there, suffering in torment, saying that Jesus should save himself and them. It was quite arrogant when he did it, no doubt. But the other criminal, he rebuked the first criminal. And he said, hey, we deserve the punishment for our crimes. But this man, he doesn't deserve it. And then he humbly asked Jesus to remember him when Jesus set up his kingdom. And we all know which, to which one Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. It was not the one that even in that moment of pain and suffering, puffed himself up and said, hey, you know, you, you, if you really are who you say you are, you ought to get us off of here. It was the one that said, I don't deserve it, but if you would just remember me, I'd sure appreciate it. 
And God responded to a simple prayer of a dying man on a cross like that. Humility. Everyone say, humble yourselves and pray. But let's take it another layer. Because the next statement, the word says, and seek my face. So many rich layers in this verse, and, and if you do view it as a progressive thing, which I'm not trying to make a hard and fast doctrine here tonight, but, but it is powerful. Now, praying is powerful. I think we've established that, but God wants to be more than just somebody that we uh, offload our, our laundry list of needs to, of course. We understand that. He's not some cosmic vending machine or a celestial Santa Claus. Can I get an amen? Amen. Again, he wants relationship. And so rather than just praying that God will bless and meet need, God desires for us to seek him simply for him. And, and really this layer of, of the prayer is when we get to a point where we say, God, if you never do anything else for me, you've already done enough. If you never heal any other disease that my body may or may not get, if you never touch any of my family members again, I believe you will. I know you can. But if you never do anything else for me, God, you've already been so faithful. Your mercies have been new every morning, and they'll continue to be, oh, you're so good to me, God. That's this kind of place, when, when God himself becomes enough. In the Old Testament, I, I don't want to get into this too deep, but, but my mind went to the Levites. They were not allotted a portion of land like every other tribe was allotted a portion of land. But their portion was the Lord himself. The priests in the nation of Israel, they, their, their portion was the Lord, and that was enough. To just have him, to just have his presence, to be able to operate and function in the, in the tabernacle, in the presence of God, that was enough. The Lord was their portion, and, and we are a kingdom of priests in the New Testament, and, and we must be the same. God, if you never give me anything else or do anything else, the Lord is my portion, and I shall not want. You are good to me, God, and you are enough. So we seek him for him. Seek means desire, endeavor, inquire, pursue, search. And we heard this recently from Pastor Raymond, but face, the Hebrew is panim, and it is translated many other times as presence. So to seek the face of God again is to pursue his presence. It is wonderful to bring your needs and your cares, your requests, your petitions, your problems, all of it to the Lord, and it's right to do so. But beyond bringing our prayer list, there is that invitation, that deeper level and layer of prayer where we seek after his presence. And this is where true connection and intimacy are cultivated with God. I just have a few verses here about seeking the Lord. We must believe that he is a rewarder, the writer of Hebrews said, of them that diligently seek him. Not seek what he can do for you, but just seek him. Not the work of his hand for you, but his face, his presence. Psalm chapter 27, verse 4 at the back. We're just going to skip a verse here, skip a few verses. One thing have I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek after. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Psalm 63, verse 1, O God, thou art my God, early will I seek thee. My soul thirsteth for thee. My flesh longeth for thee in a dry and thirsty land where no water is. 
And so we, we come in alignment with what the prophets of old said. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Seek him. Seek him. The prophet Jeremiah said, and ye shall seek me and find me, saith the Lord, when ye shall search for me with all of your heart. Jesus in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 7, verse 7, ask and it shall be given you. Seek and ye shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. We got to seek the Lord. Seek his face. Desire his presence. You will keep in perfect peace the man whose mind is stayed on thee, O God. Just keep your mind focused on him, to linger, to be with him. He desires that. So how do we seek God in a practical sense? I'm hastening to a close tonight. I believe we find a, a way to seek the Lord in 1 Chronicles 22:19. The Bible says, now set your heart and your soul, that's your mind, set your heart and your mind to seek the Lord your God. The mind that is our attention, the heart that is our affection. And if we want to seek the Lord, we have to ask ourselves the question, what am I currently giving my mind or my attention to? And take some of that a lot of time, carve it back, claw it back, and start allocating it to the things of God. To dwell on his word, to meditate on his law day and night, to, to spend time meditating and soaking up the presence of the Lord and talking to him like you talk to anybody else. And we're going to say your attention. And the more that we set our attention on the Lord, the more our heart becomes engaged, and that is our affection. Our time is a treasure. And when Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also, I don't believe that was only in reference to our monetary means, but the resources of our lives, certainly the resource of our time, and the more that we put our attention, our mind on the things of God, our heart follows suit. We guide our heart. So now, set your heart and your mind to seek the Lord your God. Everyone say, seek my face. Seek my face. Now we're ending coming to the close of our side of the equation, but there is one more phrase that we will look at tonight. Scripture says, and turn from their wicked ways. And we must not forget the importance of righteousness in our lives and in our pursuit of God. As we turn from wickedness, we invite God's pleasure and favor upon our lives. Jesus said, but seek ye first the kingdom of God, and, say it, and his righteousness. Don't just seek his kingdom, but seek his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. The prophet Isaiah, he spoke about how our iniquities, 59 and 2, they have separated between you and your God, and, and sins have a way of God causing God to hide his face from us that he will not hear us. And so, it is an ever-important endeavor to turn from our wicked ways if we want to get to the other side of the equation and God hear us from heaven. Let me read you a few verses. 2 Timothy 2.19, Paul said, Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his. And let everyone that nameth the name of Christ, if you're called by his name, then you ought to depart from iniquity. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and then I will receive you, 
and be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. And the very next verse is the first verse of chapter 7. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. We must turn from wickedness and live righteous lives to the best of our ability before the Lord if we desire for God to do a work of healing in our land. I am not talking about earning salvation. Our, our righteous good deeds, they're, they're as filthy rags before the Lord. We couldn't merit our salvation. It is only by the grace of God. But again, there are some conditional things in our walk with the Lord, and, and I believe that His favor, His blessing, and the way that He works on our behalf and through us is conditional on something like this, turning from wicked ways. Now with all that said, and this is where I'll end, I do think, and I, I'm, I'm persuaded of righteous living, I believe that it's right, and I believe it, it blesses you like hardly anything else can. When you live out the principles of the word of God, what a blessed life you're going to live. But with all of that said, I'm persuaded of that. I, I do think it is appropriate that the call to turn from your wicked ways is not the first thing on the list, but rather the final thing on our list of ifs. It's at the end of the equation. And I think that there's a lot of people, maybe under the sound of my voice, even people in our world that would assume that, well, I've got to get everything in order and I've got to, I've got to get all my T's crossed and my I's dotted before I can approach God in that sort of way. And, and I don't believe that that is the message of the Bible. I don't believe that that is the message of the gospel at all. That we have to get everything in order and, and, and have a clean track record for three months, six months, five years, or whatever before we can really lean into our relationship with the Lord. You don't have to be perfect to approach God, I believe, is the message. You, you don't have to be perfect in order to take a step toward the Lord. And I think it's helpful for us to see this as the final step on the list. Don't wait until you have fully turned away from sinful tendencies and wicked ways before you pray, before you humble yourself and pray before you seek his face. Start there. Start on the journey of prayer first. And that is where you will find the strength to overcome sin. I remember many years ago, I was working a secular job and I was doing a Bible study at my home with a young man that I worked with. We were talking about baptism in Jesus' name and, and, and you know, I could tell he was interested. He wanted to do it, but his, his concern, his conundrum was, well, well, I'm not sure if I will be able to live the Christian walk and live the Christian life after I'm baptized and I'm, I'm afraid that I'm going to fall down and fail God. And he just couldn't get past that. We talked through it and, you know, we quoted all the verses, when I fall, not if I fall, I shall arise. And when I sit in darkness, the Lord shall be a light. A just man falls seven times, but the trick is he gets back up again. And if we confess our sins, he's faithful, he's just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He just couldn't get, couldn't get past that. And he thought in his mind somewhere that, that he had to get good enough in order to lay hold on God. And, and it is the complete opposite message, brothers and sisters. We approach God. We get God, if you will, in order to get good. Turn from your wicked ways. It culminates our list of ifs on our side of the equation. The truth of the matter is this. Prayer and devotion, they are the very things 
that will help us to rise above our flesh and to say no to sin. And if we try to overcome sin and we aren't praying, then we are going to fail. You can write it down. If you are trying to just subdue this, this mortal frame and this, and this sinful flesh by yourself, you're not going to have much luck. But if you will come before God and ask for his help and, and seek his presence and invite him into the midst of the process, you're going to find a whole lot more strength in that way. You need him to help you. We all need him to help us to turn from wicked ways. My favorite, one of my favorite verses on this subject, Galatians 5.16, this I say then, walk in the spirit and ye shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. We get it backwards sometimes in our thinking, don't we? We think don't, don't fulfill the lusts of the flesh and then we'll be able to walk in the spirit. That's not what Paul said. We walk in the spirit and God gives us the strength to rise above flesh. Prayer produces sanctification. Prayer produces an overcoming life. Romans 8.13, we already read this in another context earlier, but Paul said, if you live after the flesh, you shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body. He didn't just say, stop sinning, mortify the deeds of your body. He said it's going to be through the Spirit that that happens. And if you do that, ye shall live. And Jesus said, Watch and pray. Watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. For the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. It will always, it has always taken prayer. It takes prayer. I close. So on our side of the equation, I, I, I'm just kind of posing this. It, it is a progressive thing in my mind. There are layers to our relationship with God. If my people call by my name, if we will humble ourselves, pray, seek his face, and turn from wickedness, God said, there's some things that I'm going to do. And I believe that in some ways, God's role is also progressive. Because first God said, I'm going to hear you. Then I'm going to forgive you, the the prayer, the one that is lifting their voice to me, I will forgive you. But it's not only going to be relegated to your life, to just your family, to just a church congregation. It always, God always has a desire to go beyond that and to touch a land, to, to heal a land and to change the tenor and the tone of an entire city. He, he desires to do that kind of a work. It's a progressive thing. And it begins with our prayers reaching his ear. I will hear you. It moves to impacting our lives. I will forgive you. But God finishes by touching the world around us. And that's what true revival is. Revival is something that begins within us, but then it moves beyond us to the world around us. Revival, it always begins with the people of God humbly praying to God. And experiencing it within ourselves. But the apex of revival is when God moves beyond the church building in here. And he starts healing the brokenness of our world out there. Our world needs healing. We all agree. But in order to get there, you've got to go back to the beginning. It all starts. It always starts with a praying people in the earth. If my people will pray. Can you stand to your feet tonight? 
I feel the, the presence of the Lord, the touch of God. We always say, we, we would declare, we agree, our world needs God, and it does. But can I just pose to us tonight that what our world needs first is us. Our world first needs us to be a people of prayer, a people on our knees, a people that know what it is to touch heaven and interact with God. Revival can come to this world, and revival will come to this world if the people of God will continue in what we've been doing this past week and, and pursue him through prayer, through denying ourselves in fasting. If we will do it, God will do it. If you believe, why don't you lift your hands for a moment? We're going to dismiss in prayer. Can we just take two or three minutes and can we really engage in prayer right now and let the word that we have heard just settle in our spirit tonight? Can we just make a consecration and can we resolve like we heard from Pastor on Sunday? Can we make a, a resolution in our spirit and determine, God, I am going to be a man, a woman of prayer. I'm going to carve some things away, God, and lay aside some weights and, and set my affection on things above this week, day by day. Oh, I need you, Jesus. I need thee every hour. I need thee. Oh, God, let us be a people of prayer. What an opportunity laid before us for us more uh, mere mortal human beings to touch heaven and to enter into the throne room of God. Oh God, we might as well stop or end this service before we stop and why don't we join our voices together and why don't we pray over the city of Fredericton why don't we ask that God would heal our land God would you hear us from heaven here tonight God would you hear the cry of your people Jesus, we've been in a season of denying our flesh. God, we've been turning away from some things. And God, your word promises that if we would turn, God, if we would pray, if we would seek, God, that you would hear and forgive and heal. So, Lord, let a healing begin to flow even now as we pray in the city of Fredericton and in our nation, oh God, we ask. Lord, I pray that throughout the remainder of 2024 that the city of Fredericton, the people that we share communities and neighborhoods with, God, I pray that there would be an upward spiritual trajectory, that souls would be impacted, that eternities would be changed, God, because of the prayers of your people. Lord, let a, let a prayer revival be sparked in Capital Community Church. Let a prayer revival be sparked in my soul, I pray, oh God. Hallelujah, 